Well, hello, 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 hello. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed and ever shall be, and hopefully until the sun explodes, you're gracious and you're grateful host. How about that? I want to continue to thank my dear friend, producer of this little shindig, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, for getting me these incredible people to speak to. Oh, it is his birthday today. Not the day necessarily that's going to go up, but the day that I'm currently recording this. It is his birthday. Happy birthday, my friend. Everybody sing happy birthday to him on this podcast. Uh, okay. I love you, man. You're a fantastic human being. Congratulations. So one of the people that he got me to speak to was this woman coming up named Diana Asana. Now, Diana won an Academy Award for her work uh, in screenwriting on Brokeback Mountain and was a producer on the show. So first Oscar award winner on the show so far. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the Oscars. And it's, I guess for me, it's just fun. I used to live in L.A. for a long time. And it's just that vibe of the Oscars are coming up. And you can go down to the Kodak Theater before they actually start the show. And you can see the celebrities walk by. It's kind of a fun thing. So I thought that I would talk about some fun facts about the Oscars for a heartbeat. Before I did that, I was going to play the old song, Hooray for Hollywood. And I found a version of it by the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. It's about five years after the show started, or ended rather, and it's terrible, as you would imagine. But here we go. Yeah, they're all wearing like red velvet outfits, but it was the 70s. So let's talk about a couple of fun things about the Oscars. This is great. So remember, these memories. One was in 1999 when Robert Nanini, I can never pronounce his name, no one can, from Life is Beautiful, the Italian actor, won for Best Actor. And he ran up, he stood up and he ran over all the seats and over, stood over all the chairs and his arms were in the air. It was a great moment. Uh, Groucho Marx, actually, in 1973, I, I watched this on YouTube. He had a Lifetime Prize Award. And everybody's laughing because he's telling jokes. But then he starts to talk about and salutes the comedy brothers that he had lost. It was really powerful. But finally, my favorite story, actually, is in 1971, having been snubbed by, for Citizen Kane, Orson Welles, they gave him an honorary Oscar back in 1971. And so John Huston actually accepted it because he said Welles was out of the country filming. And by out of the country, that actually meant that he was in a bar in L.A. watching the show on television and waiting for John Huston to come down and get drunk with him. That is fantastic. Hooray for Hollywood indeed. Here we go. Last little bit. Oh, baby mutants all of a sudden on the on show. Man, the 70s were fucking weird. Anyway, this is my intro to uh, the lovely and talented Diana Sadana. She had written with Larry McMurtry, who was her writing partner for 35 years. And they had this just beautiful relationship, very symbiotic, friends, co-writers, experienced life together. And they had written, not only did they do Brokeback Mountain, but they had a great books about the Western, Western themes. There's a great movie that they did called Joe Bell that came out a little while ago about Mark Wahlberg or with Mark Wahlberg and about homophobia, as obviously is Brokeback Mountain. A lot of TV series, uh, Comanche Moon and Dead Man's Walk. And so this, this, this conversation was absolutely stunning for me because this woman is so full of wisdom and breadth and depth and life and tragedy. And it's just, God, it was incredible. We did talk about grief uh, quite some time because she had lost uh, Larry and it was painful for her. I talked about my wife and, uh, and her loss and mine uh, with her death. So it was a beautiful experience, honestly. It was a wonderful conversation. And there's a story about Heath Ledger that's at the near the end of this that very few people know, I, I would assume, that brought me to tears. So with that in mind, I really hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did making it um, because it just had so much power to it. I'm, I'm actually stunned even thinking about it now, honestly. So that's all I got. Um, have a listen to this and hope you get out of, uh, hope you get a lot out of it. Well, hello, Dazzle Throng of the Inspired Minds podcast. Please welcome, God, I am so excited for this interview. Please welcome the lovely and talented Diana Asana. Please say hello, Diana Asana, to the Dazzle Throng. Hello. Hello, everyone. Oh, what a pleasure this is. My goodness. Um, so the way I like to start these interviews off, Diana, is with the exact same question I ask every single other person. It starts off like this. When you were young... What was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you? Was it a song or a book or a person? Go. 
You know, I think the thing that that really inspired me the most to become a writer, I'll put it like that, was reading the novel Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Really? Yes. Why? Because he dove so thoroughly into the backstories of all his characters. You knew those people, when he brought them on stage, you you learned about them and knew about them and you understood what what helped me and i read it i think i was about seven or eight mm-hmm. when i read it and i remember thinking how complicated adult life was you know and that um my childhood was not a particularly happy one okay. and so reading was my escape it was my savior actually it was my salvation mm-hmm. uh, reading and watching movies so I think that, that that novel had more of an impact on me than anything. Okay. So the part B of the question we've answered, which is how did that create an arrow, a through line for the rest of your life? Not necessarily career. I became a voracious reader. I became so curious about the world. I read everything that came within my orbit. Like I would read the Reader's Digest at the doctor's office. I'd read newspapers. <laughs> I would read books. My my parents, my mother had books. Um, I read the Reader's Digest conven- condensed, what they called condensed articles. I read those uh, until I, you know, I sometimes would read them over. Started going to the library. And uh, back then you could check out 11 books at a time. So I would get into a section and I'd check out 11 and then I'd read them in, a, in like a couple of weeks and then go back and get the next 11 and then oh. open it over. And I, you know, when I was, I remember in the fourth grade, I read uh, something like 450 uh, biographies. My, uh, my teacher was floored, yeah. but I just couldn't stop. I wanted to learn about humans and how they operated and why they did what they did and all of those things. I was very interested in the psychology of character. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, all of that, um, all of that just had a tremendous influence on me. And I, reading is something that I do to this day. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I understand that you started reading the newspaper when you were seven with a dictionary next to you. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I would get the Sunday paper from outside and bring it in and sit in the chair in the living room before anybody else was up. And I would just start pouring through it and generally would put it back together. So my folks wouldn't get annoyed that, you know, the paper had been rifled, but Uh, yeah. yeah. And current events and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the concept of the physicality of you getting a book off the shelf and putting it next to you. And now you just go to Wikipedia or go to Google and dictionary. Yes. Right. And that's that that physicality that I think kind of weds you more to the to the understanding of the word and the process. And that's the great joy about reading an actual book. You know, there are many, many senses are stimulated. Visual sense, the sense of smell, the sense of touch. There are a lot of things going on there when you're reading a book. Right. Because that's sense memory. There's event memory and sense memory. Event memory goes away in a second. Sometimes. Sense memory. You kidding me? Olfactory? Come on. Yeah. So there's another line. I'm, I, a lot of this is going to be just reading back shit to you that you've already said. So it's easier this way. Um, you have this great line. You have so many great lines. One of them is, one of the jobs of art is to inspire discussion. Pull on that thread. Well, you know, I think... Um... When I got my Oscar and I was up on stage, I think one of the things I said was the duty of art, if it has one, is to shine light into the darkness of people's hearts. Yep. It's to make you aware, intentionally or not, of the world around you. And it's to uh, inspire empathy Mm -hmm. and caring and love and all kinds of things fear it's a it's a really it's such a great concept to me and you know art comes from unlikely places it could be um seeing two people walking down the street holding hands 
It could right. be dogs cuddling with one another. Yeah, a thousand percent. And, you know, I, I have a similar thing. You know, I, in a sense, for me, great art, again, it's, it's kind of like that conversation we were having a second ago before we record about capital A and, and, and little a. Great mm-hmm. art for me is like a letter to the cosmos, right? Because you're, whatever that is, if it's the Beach Boys, wouldn't it be nice? Or if it's Jackson Pollock painting, or if it's a five-year-old's finger painting. Sure. What are you talking about? Exactly. Those are... Those are powerful things. And, you know, it's funny. I, there's this line that I love so much. It's so influential for me. I think it'll probably register with you. Uh, Keith Richards was asked, I, tell, I talk about this all the time on this show, but Keith Richards was asked, how do you write a song? What's your process? And he said, like, it's got to be a lightning rod, man. You know, songs are already out there. And I was like, that's it. But I'm, I kind of tweaked it a little bit to be a tuning fork. Right. Well, that's interesting. That's a really interesting thing to say. I mean, um, Annie, when we asked her where she got the story, the Brokeback story, mm-hmm. she said she felt like um, it had been uh, like she it had been channeled to her, yeah. you know, and Larry and I, when we write or when we were writing together or, you know, s- separately or whatever, it was almost trance like. Because you'd be writing, when we were writing Pretty Boy Floyd, the novel, in fact, I would be writing at my computer and someone would come in the room and talk to me. I wouldn't even notice them. I'd be mm-hmm. in my own world with these people, with these characters. Just like you were you were young? Yes, exactly. Ah, oh, what a lovely concept. And you're right. I really do. Believe, God, this is getting heavy quickly. I'm usually a lot more funny than this. Let's just FYI. We're going to get funny later. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. But... Yes, I do. I really believe that, you know, that, 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 that that's this concept of, of, of great art being a ladder to God. I have been fortunate enough that for whatever reason I have been, uh, I, I am that tuning fork in a lot of ways. I mean, if I hear anything, if I hear classic country or if I hear, you know, if I hear Patsy Cline, I am not thinking about the past. I'm not certainly thinking about the future. I am present at that exact moment. Mm-hmm. That's that tuning fork. And then that's where inspiration comes in. Although music is talk about sensory memory. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a question. Let's go there, actually. Music is obviously a part of your story, fan or otherwise. Where do you go with that kind of thing? With music, well, music, I am a fan of all the genres. You know, I, I love um, old country, like Merle Haggard and even Johnny Cash. I mean, you, you know, he, he's sort of a crossover too, from mm-hmm. country and and pop but you know i love merle i was fortunate enough to see merle at the bakersfield uh, crystal palace which was the buck owens famous place that he did you know i i actually the really quick funny merle story is that uh my late wife and i were there but um he was just cantankerous and bullying everybody like he kind of usually does but he was he was kind of fun not bullying but he was just uh-huh. anyway somebody yells in the audience so like they kept doing it too, like play Oki from Muskogee, you know. And then he goes, forget this. He goes, This is my fucking show. I'm gonna do whatever the fuck I want. And I turned to my wife and I went, This is why we came. That's a good that is so great. That is so great. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. But you know, so so the Western thing, the country thing, you know, so I was thinking about this, and um, you know, obviously a lot of your metier. <laughs> using that pretentious word is around the Western themes and, you know, you know, they got the Comanche moon uh, and the streets of Laredo PS, Dizzy SpaceX. Come on. Mm-hmm. We were so lucky to get that cast. Oh my God. That whole, I mean, I saw Sissy in that thing and I was like, I am whatever this is. I am in, this is brilliant. But you know, you do have these, you know, obviously these themes with broke back and, and I really want to get into Joe Bell as well in a bit here, but sure. What is it about that Western genre that speaks to you? You know, because if I, it, you know, Pretty Boy Floyd seemed to be a little bit too about that in the sense of the outlaw and the freedom and well, certainly Zeke and Ned, you know, yes. the two Native Americans. So, you know, what, what is it about that that is so rooted for you? Uh, when I was a little girl, again, I was a serious tomboy. Hmm. It became very clear to me very early that boys had all the fun. And I, you know, I wanted to be a cowgirl. When I was six, I asked my folks for a set of um, cap pistols for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting those and, you know, parading out in front of the house with my holster, <laughs> cap pistols up and down the street. I thought, you know, I was really something. 
you know, when, when I was growing up, the the shows on television were, you know, Wanted Dead or Alive, Have Gun Will Travel, which, by the way, was one of mine and Larry's favorite series. We bought, in fact, we bought the CD collection of Have Gun Will Travel because nice. these little, they were unusual Westerns. They were like a half hour morality play. Huh. You know, that kind of thing. And the character was, you know, of, of ambiguous morality, which uh, many of our characters are and, you know, of Larry's own characters in his books. They're all flawed, but, you know, you're not quite sure exactly where they're coming from. Yeah. Moral nuance. That's a thing. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's it's human. Yeah. I know that we have a tendency just kind of as human beings uh to categorize things binarily, right? Because it's, it's just the brain's lazy, so we just categorize these things to go, I'll think about that later. But when you get into that kind of binary thinking, the danger of it is obviously that you get these people who are 100% great or 100% bad, and that doesn't work that way. No, and you know, a lot of people do that as a protective mechanism. Categorizing, you know, when we meet someone, right away we're sizing them up, you know, and we try to put them in a category so that our, we ourselves feel safe with them. Correct. You know, and that's a very common thing to do as human beings. It's not, it's not a, a, a flaw. It's how we survive. I have a tendency more so when I meet someone, I start, I make a little file folder in my brain and I start filing information in there. You know, we, we all are part of what, what I call a spectrum of humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very few people who are purely good and purely evil. I mean, as close to purely evil are psychopaths, right? The people that have no conscience, you know, and there are no angels, but you've got, you know, there's everybody that's sort of in between. And one of the things that Larry um, and I in writing, and I think this, this is one of the reasons we complimented one another. We never judged our characters. Mm. We created them and took them for what they were. And, you know, you, you care about your characters, even the bad ones when you're, creating them in this world can't it's kind of as a writer you kind of can't help it it's just kind of the nature of it i feel very strongly that you know um one of the important qualities to have as a writer is you can't be unless you're doing documentaries or fic- non-fiction it's uh it's you can't be judgmental of your characters no and you know i gotta ask you this question too i ask a lot of uh uh writers this question usually fiction and that is when you write something for the character that is a um, that, like some tragedy that will befall them or some you know some negative thing that happened to them, do you feel kind of bad for your character? You must. Well, absolutely. I mean, with Pretty Boy, it was oh yeah, you cry. I mean, I did, mm-hmm. and I know when Larry was writing Streets of Laredo it was after his heart surgery, which changed him drastically. Um, and I'd only I'd only ever seen Larry cry maybe three, four times max in the, the 35 years I knew him. I walked around the corner one morning when he was writing at my counter and tears were pouring down his face. And I knew not to interrupt him. I just let him go. And then I got his pages and put them in my computer. And uh, But it was a hor- horrifically tragic scenario with the mother, Maria, and her son. And it was all about the characters. It was what they were experiencing. Really? Yeah. And, you know, when you're writing fiction and people, it's funny, people ask you, why did you do this? Or why did you do that with a character? It's funny when you're in the throes of writing fiction, you kind of lose control of where your characters go. You know, if you get a really solid beginning, they begin to take on a life of their own. And every morning you get up or however you do your your pages and they kind of lead you through the day's writing. What's wonderful about that, we never outlined. What's wonderful about that is that it's exciting to get up every day and see what where your characters were going to take you. Absolutely. And I got to say this, actually, because this thought just crossed my mind. Going back to that lightning rod tuning fork thing, maybe the characters are floating around and you are the conduit and they're going to tell you where to go. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I like that idea. I like that idea. You know, because I mean, not only are ideas floating around, but art flows around us all the time, for God's sakes, which leads me into my next thing. God, that was a great segue. You're going to see why in a second. I'm the master of the disaster with this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like Dick Cavett style. 
So storytelling. Oh, I know a lot of people talk about storytelling and it's super great. I'm really into it. Story saved my life. Um, and I've been telling stories about my traumas and my just very open about a lot of these things. So I've noticed that storytelling is so fascinating. The stories are flying us around us all the time. You know that, right? Daily, yes. daily, little things too. Like, hey, babe, went to the Safeway and this crazy thing happened. Now you got a beginning in the middle and the end is, and then this happened, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can extract meaning from those tiny little vignettes in your life, then you can maybe get a meta narrative of meaning in your entire life and arc, right? Which is what I'm trying to do with my clients, honestly, and kind of this intervention deal. But it's that storytelling. So it's the oral tradition. That's my thing, right? And to that point, I'd like to try this. I think this might be interesting. So I do know that um, Larry was obviously his best friend, 35 years, and he has had an incredibly wonderful and, and, and productive and spiritual relationship, I can already tell from the words and from the conversations. So I realized that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, before we started, my wife uh, committed suicide about you know eight years ago. And I realized that stories animate the dead. I believe that at least. So if you are like to, I would like to hear a story about Larry beginning, middle, and an end. Doesn't matter how long, doesn't matter what the topic is, and I will share one with you. Let me think about that. I have to think about that, Jeff, because there's so many. No, me too. <laughs> uh, you don't have to. I can. I can move on. No, no. Let me just let me think. <laughs> um, here's one. Okay. I just finished a, an essay for the University of Texas Press about Larry and how we came to write together. But I'll tell you a funny story. You know, when when I was getting to know Larry, the first several years that we were friends, um, I would travel with him quite a bit. He liked to drive. Mm. Um, you know, we'd wind up at his ranch house in Texas. And I remember um, in the evenings um, around seven o'clock, always after dinner, he would get on the telephone mm. and he would start talking to his various women friends one after the other. And he was generally on the phone from about seven to nine. Wow. Sometimes till 10. And he just go from one to the other. <laughs> and I, I, um, at one point, you know, I thought it was like, what the heck? <laughs> so he got off the phone one night and I said, Larry, who are all these women you're talking to? And he said, Oh, well, they're my girlfriends. <laughs> and I said, uh girlfriends i said do they know about each other and you know he looked horrified he was like no you know and i just yeah i started laughing and he just glared at me he's like why is that funny you know and then later some couple years later when we were when he managed he had bought this big house in town and had it renovated And we were putting the phone lines in and I said, Larry, do you want to get call waiting on the phone, on the phone lines? And he goes, what is that? And I Uh said, well, it's when you're on a call and you can put it on hold and talk to another person that's calling. His eyes got huge and he's like, no, he said, those calls might bleed into each other. Oh, I started laughing. Yeah, there you go. So there's a Larry story. (laughs) Oh my God, that's fantastic. Okay, here's the next question. Out of all the billion stories you could have told about him, why that one? Oh, because it was so telling. You know, Larry loved women. Uh, you know, he loved women. He thought women w- were uh, definitely the superior sex. Uh, I agree with that. And he would say this, and I think it's in interviews with him. He said, you know, if you want to know anything really, really um, significant about life and emotion, you have to go to women. Men don't have a clue. (laughs) He's not wrong. (laughs) Okay, my turn. Okay. So, uh, as I mentioned, my wife was a a capital A artist. Good Lord, she was a capital A artist. And her art really was, um, uh, well, she was a, a brilliant, brilliant fashion designer. Um, and then she had her own line, like a side thing. She was just a capital A artist, uh, shocking pink hair, punk rock chick, tattooed up the whole deal, kind of my thing. Or obviously was as I married her. But um, so here's a great story about her. This this is, I mean, there are a billion of them, right? Because you know how that works, but here's a great one. So I don't know if you know this or not, 
But in Los Angeles, at Griffith Park, there's a statue called the Griffith Park Bear, right? And it's been there for, you know, ever. And it's just a statue right on the, basically just out on the street kind of thing, like on the, uh, right near the sidewalk. And every holiday, my wife would meticulously make these costumes around each holiday. So um, it would be a Santa Claus outfit, or it would be, uh, uh, like, she made one for, like, uh, what was it, um, Oh, come on. Uh, St. Patrick's Day. And it was like a, a you know, uh, I'm drawing blanks here, but an Irish guy, basically, what the word is. Um, for Halloween, she would dress it up. But the best part of it is you would sneak in at night. We would do it together. No one was around, knowing full well that it would be gone the next day and stolen or taken down by the people. Right. Mm-hmm. She didn't care. We knew that. So it was that idea of giving without the expectation of reciprocity mm-hmm. and doing things just for art. Um, oh, also, she was on Wheel of Fortune, and we won a cruise to uh, Greece and Italy. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I was on Rock and Roll Jeopardy, by the way, uh, the rock and roll version of Jeopardy about 20 years ago. Look at that. You know, I think um, most artists don't necessarily believe they'll get something in return. I mean, you do do certain things to make a living. Sure. Certainly. You know? But I'm not certain that the, you know, the, whatever that you get in return, I think, I think what you get in return is the satisfaction of having created something, you know, even if it's a, I mean, and because it's always a risk when you set out to create something, you know, you, the risk is the risk of failure, you know, whether it's a good meal or, you know, a fancy work of art or a book, it's you know that that's the risk taking part is is um the exciting part because you never know if it'll be successful or accepted or work you know i really want to make this conversation about you because that's kind of you know the point but mm-hmm. i would like to kind of share this with you this kind of hit me about uh, about a month ago i was looking at an apple tree in the backyard here and Johnny Appleseed just popped in my head and I'm like, all right, the story about the guy, my name is Johnny Appleseed. So he, you know, the story is obviously he throws the seeds because another town throws the seeds because another town. And it hit me like a bolt of lightning, like two months ago, I said, he would never, he never, he never had the fruits of his own labor. Right. Cause he's mm-hmm. gone. He doesn't know if that tree raised, he didn't, he never felt the shade. He never touched the bark. To me, that's the ultimate example of giving without the expectation of reciprocity because I never fucking see it in the first place. Hmm. Right? Yes. I, the, the guy's gone. He is long gone. He has no concept of what happened with that tree. And guess what? If it didn't pop up, big deal. The guy's like, put out like nine seeds that, that second. Who cares? Exactly. All right. Well, there you go. That's my little, uh, little Johnny Appleseed thing. Maybe I can get sponsored by Johnny Appleseed somehow. I doubt it. Anyway, there's a really, <laughs> there's a really wonderful thing that you said. And again, a lot of this is going back uh, to some of the things you said. It, it was really interesting. You said that a close friend of mine said to me once that people are mainly motivated by two emotions, fear and love. I would maybe change it up a little bit personally to safety and love or the potential for safety and love. Um, it's, but it's similar. Think about right. it. You're right. You know, they're what they're they want safety because they're afraid. Correct. Yeah, you're right. You know? And, and um, you know, fear is such a it's such a negative place to come from because it encompasses more than just fear. It encompasses anger and envy and resentment and jealousy. It's it's a mixed bag. You know, that's very, it's a simplistic statement, but, and yet it's complicated. Just as I said, love also, you know, is, is a, is a mixed bag. It's love. It's, it's, um, admiration. It's loyalty. It's, uh, empathy. It's, it's a lot of different things contained in that, in that concept. I understand that actually, because what you're basically saying is that fear and love are Rosetta Stones. Right. Yep. Yeah, I get that now. There's a couple other things. I've obviously I have notes that I'm I'm kind of uh, just kind of dancing around here. 
Um, but there was one thing I really thought was wonderful that you said also about Brokeback, specifically Annie. And she's, quote, you said, Annie wasted not a single word in that story. And it goes to my thinking of economy of writing. I just love that. I find that in your work as well. That's true. Absolutely. There's not a wasted word in that story. Short and stories are a very difficult medium. Why is that? I mean, obviously just the length. <laughs> what imagine? The length, and you have to keep the the reader engaged for the entire story. You know, it's 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 like um, a novel. You can sort of wander all over the place with your character and bring in other characters and and uh, storylines. But with a short story, it has to be compact, uh, economic, uh, and it has to work. The words just have to be meaningful. The choice of words is is precise. Uh, if you read that story, it's the kind of the perfect example of a of a short story. It's also the the perfect skeleton for a script. Why? Because of the economy? No, because she was so precise. Uh. Annie's, you know, her description of the characters. Her description of the of the world that they lived in, for me, when I read it, I remember feeling so curious about the things that she brought up, even the t- simplest, you know, the 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 shortest little sentence about, um, you know, Alma and Ennis, or or uh, what what uh, Jack's background was living at home. Hmm. I wanted to explore. I wanted to explore the lives of of everybody contained in the story. Not just the two men, but the ripple effect of their of their homophobia, right? You know how it affected everybody around them. It was just to me when I when I first read that story, I felt like someone had struck me with lightning. Because you're in tune. <laughs> oh my God, I was, uh, and I became obsessed with getting it. I wanted to get it out into the world um, in some major way, and the most potent. And worldwide way I felt was a film. You know how when you experience something like that and you you know to uh, to experience it as well. Read this story. You've got to read this story. It's amazing. Or you've got to see this film. Or you you know you've got to see this painting. It's it, I wanted. I it's was one of those things. I kept thinking, my God, people have to read this. The effect is it's so powerful. Beautifully stated. You know, there was one thing, too, that, you know, we're kind of talking about this economy that the moment that I broke in Brokeback Mountain, like when I was in, it was extremely beautiful, obviously, elegiac, incredible writing, obviously, direction, angle, acting, everything top notch. But the thing that really got to me in a, in a almost transcendent kind of way was when at the end, you notice that Jack's cowboy shirt is in the closet, right? And yes. for me, it's this, I've been having this idea lately of the talismans of grief, right? That we hold on to these things sometimes. I mean, I hold, to be honest, I got rid of a lot of the stuff from my marriage because of, or from the suicide because I was angry and blah, 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 blah. But I held on to a driver's license and the death certificate and our wedding photo, right? As these talismans, as these perhaps these strange conductive metals that can get me to somewhere. And I saw that in Jack's cowboy shirt. There's an interesting story I have for you on set. Please. I'd really I'd really want to write a book about my whole experience because it encompasses, you know, eight years. Sure. It's a long story about the broke back thing. Yeah. The morning that we shot that scene, I was on set for the entire shoot and I I went out to my, my chair. Heath came up to me. And we were about to shoot that last scene, that final scene where he opens the closet door. Mm-hmm. And he said, I have a surprise for you today. I said, really? He said, yes, I'm so excited. And he was so, he was just a delight Mm. in every way. Mm. When he wasn't, when we weren't filming him, he was so opposite of Ennis. You know, he was just this bright light of Mm. energy and, and enthusiasm. And uh, he was all excited like a little boy. And, um, he ran into the trailer house and we began filming. We get to where he opens the door and he says, Jack, I swear. Mm-hmm. And when he opened the door, I was like, oh, my God. And it it brought tears to my eyes. So he ran back outside 
And he said, well, what do you, you know? And he's like, you know, you saw him filming it. He's like ready to cry. Uh, he ran out and he says, well, what do you think? What do you think? And well, he saw me. I said, you saw, look at me, I'm crying. <laughs> and he hugged me. And uh, what he had done when he finds the shirts in the closet, in Jack's closet, huh? his shirt is inside Jack's. When he opens that closet door, Jack's shirt is inside his. Are you kidding me? No, and that was his idea. Oh. That was his idea. That tells you where he was as that character. Oh, my God. I got knocked back on my feet right now. It's not in the script that way. He did that hit on not. his own. That young man was, you know, talk about uh, oh my God. what a loss. What a loss. Extraordinary. You know, and what this reminds me of, because my wife basically with Heath was Heath Ledger and you know, again, capital A artists. And so I was thinking about this a long time ago. It came to me that my wife was a comet that streaked across the sky, but burned out as all comets eventually do. Mm-hmm. And that's people like that. People come into our lives. You know, this people come into our lives, Larry, my wife, Heath, doesn't matter. Right. You just got to see the comet and then it burns out sometimes. And that's what happens because they just burn so brightly. Yes. Um, and, you know, going back to Brokeback, or I guess we're still on there, you know, it's interesting because the way it was marketed, obviously, was, you know, a gay cowboy movie. And there was a lot of that going around. But after I watched, I realized it's a story about magic and loss. I'd written that down when I, when I saw it. Because the loss is there, obviously. But the magic, it's the magic of these, of, of these two characters, these two men, watching their process of falling in love and seeing what that looks like. It just that's what the magic was for me. You know, the essence of the story, I mean, Annie says this for herself, you know, it's the story, it's a story about rural homophobia, right? Yeah, that's true. And people, when they see it, you know, they go, oh, well, it's a universal love story. It's this, it's that, it's the other. It's whatever an audience member takes away from it as viewed through the lens of their own experiences. Correct. However, I, I always want to return to the fact this is about two men who fall in love. Mm. There's no getting around that. You can no. say it's universal or whatever, but that is the, the specificity of that story is what makes it so powerful. The specificity of any story or film is what makes them moving and powerful. But they're specifically about these two people or these 10 people or this one person. It's that those specifics that move us. Right. Right. And yeah, 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 you're you're absolutely right. That is something that I find interesting too, because, you know, I do know that back in the fifties and the sixties and you know, this opera, the forties, maybe they had to do that code back then. Right. For the, for the, for the, you know, for the homosexual, uh, for the actors or for the storyline, at least there was that code with like Johnny guitar um, with like Joan Crawford and just basically lesbian, but they couldn't talk about it. Um, power of the dog I saw recently and thought that was a wonderful, uh, interesting perspective. Yes. It was very good. Yeah. You know, but back then you couldn't do it. And I think that was magical that that was able to come out. You know, it, 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 um, I guess I can give you a sort of a simplistic example of the specifics of caring. Please. There was a story, uh, I don't know, some years back about, um, these uh, Navy guys had to abandon a boat, a, a big ship that they were on in the in the uh, Near East there around, you know, the Gulf where Iran and Iraq and Yemen and all those places are. They had to abandon the ship because there was some issue with it and go on to another ship. And they had a dog that they had left on the on the ship. And I, I remember everybody, you know, you know, people as people began to hear the story they were so worried about this dog and saving this dog. And it became kind of a worldwide story mm-hmm. instead of just a, you know, a local story here and there. And it, the, the obsession was with saving this poor dog by the entire world, frankly. And if, you know, this, the fact that it was this specific dog and they told his story and they had photographs of this dog, it was so important to people to go get that dog and save it. But those are the kind of things that, that, um, you know, that that sort of exhibits the commonality of our and the potential for our own humanity. Uh-huh. 
that the world can come together and care about this one little dog. When people saw Brokeback, I went to the theaters a couple of times, you know, just anonymously because I wanted to see how audiences reacted in person. Oh, yeah. Every time it was the same. The lights would come up and people were just sitting there. Wow. They would just sit there as if they were stunned. You know, there were some people that would leave in the middle of the film once the tenth scene happened. There, you know, just a few. But I'm and I'm talking about just your average folks, couples and older people, and maybe some gay couples. But these were just uh, people, and it was you know the humanity of that story that you would you're affected by it in spite of yourself. You were affected by it in spite of the, the preconceived notions you went into the film with. Right. That's why it was interesting that, you know, a lot of women dragged their husbands in to see it. Oh, I don't want to see that movie. And then they would see it and be like, wow, you know, what's, what was the, what was I afraid of? There we go with the fear thing again. Rosetta Stones. Yeah. yeah. What were you afraid of? What you, Larry was so funny. He says, what were they afraid they're going to turn gay? It's just a movie. Exactly. <laughs> It's just a movie. <laughs> it's like you walk in uh, and you walk out and you're Quentin Crisp suddenly. Yeah, really. It, but, you know, we got so many letters and heard so many stories from people that were gratifying. I got a few threatening letters. Okay. I imagine, unfortunately. Yeah. In fact, uh, about, about a couple months ago, I got a really nasty letter and I thought, well, this is, how did this happen? I think, you know, a lot of people would send them to our representatives and then they just forward them on. They don't open them. They just send them. And I got one. I thought, well, this that's a shame for this person. But the the letters we got were things like, that's my son's story or my daughter's story or that's my story. I, you know, my, uh, yeah, just, uh, just amazing things. And what really, what really surprised us um there were, you know, there were these uh, groups that formed, Rokeback fan groups, you know, and then there were a couple of online forums that mm-hmm. formed. And Dave Cullen, who wrote Columbine, Dave uh, headed the Ultimate Brokeback Forum. He created that. They had members from all over the world. Uh, I've gotten to be good friends with Dave. He's such a wonderful man. He's brilliant. He's just, I think, finished a, a, a book about uh, gay soldiers. Wow. He was in the military too. Wow. But the point being a whole group of the forum folks came to visit me and Larry. We took them to lunch. We went to lunch with a bunch of them. And what was fascinating afterwards, they all, I had each of them tell their stories at the table, you know, yep. Jeff, their stories, stories were stories of, I was living this way and now I have a life. I lived in my mother's basement for 30 years and I left my, my mother's basement and now I have a life. I was closeted and now I have a life. Mm-hmm. They were stories of people who were motivated after seeing that film to think I've got, I've got to grab that brass ring. I have to get out there and have a life before it's too late. Watching Ennis and him say, Jack, I swear. Jack, I swear if things had been, been different, Jack, I swear if only I'd gone to live with Jack, you know, the, the, you don't want to get to the end of your life and have these profound regrets. No, no, but that Larry and I were so startled by that. And it was, um, it was so gratifying in thinking that, that, that film actually changed these people's lives. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because why? Because you were, I say this sometimes, I say, when you're doing, I say, I actually say it this way, when you're walking in the light, when you're walking through the path, when you're doing the right thing, like Spike Lee said, there are no wrong choices. Zero. You may not like the consequences of your choices. There may, you might not like the consequences of your decisions, but if you're walking in faith, you're walking in your with your gut and you're walking with your authentic self. So there you go. The majority of the folks were gay people, but there were heterosexual people too. Absolutely. You know, it just was, yeah, it was very, it was, I guess, motivating and sort of restored your faith a little bit in humanity. Uh, I will close this part of it real quickly because I want to wrap up in a bit to be respectful of your time. But I, it's, this is stuck in my head since I was five. 
little by little cartoon panel of Linus from Peanuts saying, I love humanity, but I hate people. <laughs> I saw that at five years old and I'm like, I'm an existentialist. So kind of get, I, I really want to quickly, if we can talk about Joe Bell, because sure. that movie, um, which is so unbelievable. It spoke to me so well uh, because suicide is four. The, the suicide attempts are four times higher than heterosexuals. Yes. Right. And that's, you know, so I mentioned I'm a therapist and I, I work with a lot of the gay community and I see it all the time. And I see the continual um, actually increasing uh, homophobia going out there with like the monkey pox and like all this stuff is ridiculous. And it spoke to me so well. And I love the fact that the, um, that, that you and Larry had used uh, the ghost of the child as the, uh, as the story mover, whatever that word is. Well, that was, uh, that was an, that's interesting. Um, we went to La Grande, Oregon to, to interview the mom and brother and friends of Jaden before mm-hmm. we set out. And we went with Carrie Fukunaga. You know, he came to us, Carrie came to us and wanted us to write the story. And we said, we'd have to talk to all these folks, you know, so we all went together. Um, it was me, Larry, Carrie, Larry's uh, wife, Faye, and uh, Carrie's assistant, Hayden. And we went and talked to all, a bunch of folks, long interviews with people. And the night before we left, uh, I had a dream. And the dream was that um, Joe was walking and he was talking to Jaden, but Jaden wasn't real. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told Carrie about it the next morning. I said, you know, uh, it's so weird. And he said, well, why don't we, why don't you write it that way? Why don't you just write it as if he's talking to Jaden, mm-hmm. you know, on the trip? And it wasn't like we were trying to create this notion that Jaden was actually with him you know, in the audience's mind. You know, we wanted it to be that when Joe says the words that my son is dead, it kind of, he has to just, it's, he's really, really facing it when he's saying this out loud to somebody and, and he has to go on, travel on without him. What he was, what in our minds, what he was trying to do was resolve or come to some sort of answer or how this happened or maybe how he contributed by talking to Jaden. When we got the recordings, because Joe made recordings on his walk and we got these recordings that he had made transcribed. And when I got the transcriptions, I started reading them and Jeff, he was talking to Jaden in these recordings. Are you serious? Yes. So I told Carrie and he said, well, it's like we're supposed to do this, Diana. Oh, my God. And I said, yep, maybe so. So that was the that was how that all came about. It, you know, look, I'm not a believer in fate and uh, predestined. I'm not. I, you know, Larry and I, neither one of us believed that. We just believe that life is random and chaotic and and determined by whatever choices we make, big and small. I agree. But there is sometimes a synchronicity. You're talking Carl Jung now. You know, there's a synchronicity to life. And it's inadvertent. Yes. We don't know it's happening or coming. It's like how I met Larry, you know, at an all-you-can-eat catfish restaurant. But the the synchronicity, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Well, here, it seems to have worked. Um. My only disappointment really about the film is that there was in the script, the script is quite a bit longer than the film itself. There was a lot more about Jaden in the script that I think audiences would have loved to have seen. That's it. You know, we really had to make them up because and create the characters because they were both gone. Right. We had to imagine them and they had to be very real. And that was that was that writing that script was one of the most emotionally challenging scripts I've ever written. And Larry, um, Larry was reluctant at first to do it. He said it was too sad. Hmm. And I said, well, let me bear the burden of that sadness and we'll just go. He said, okay. How wonderful, how beautiful, how transcendent, how elegiac, my goodness. I, would love to speak with you at another time about synchronicities. I'm a Carl, I'm a synchronicities maniac with Carl Young. I promise you I could talk about it for days. 
Um, I experienced one in mania, by the way, because I was bipolar and blah, blah. And that's when you go hyper religious. And that's a whole nother story. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big, big guy on that. But to uh, keep us on check here, I have one final question. Sure. I ask the same question to every single person. I ask it to every single creative I can ever meet, including Neil Young and blah, 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 blah. You're going to be the test market for this one. Here we go. You ready? Mm-hmm. When do you know you're done? Done with what? The writing, the creative process, when you can actually hit send? Oh, gosh. I can't answer that. <laughs> Great answer. You just know. I mean, it happens and you know. It's not, there's no, there's no, I guess in quotes, there's no knowing about it. It just happens and it's there. It's the story is over. And I think it's where your characters take you. Uh, it's my favorite question ever because obviously I get a million different answers because every person's process is different. But I'll be honest with you, you gave the Neil Young, you gave the Neil Young answer because his was when I'm done. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a huge fan of his, by the way. He's oh, he's the kindest man I've ever met. My, it's a weird thing to say because he's cantankerous as hell, but some of my best memories are from his music. Oh my God. I mean, I'll leave you with this. Perhaps the greatest moment of my entire life was when I got to, uh, cause I was working with him for a while at my old job, Warner brothers, the marketing, uh, which was insane to begin with. But, um, the first time I ever met him was, uh, at the SIR studios out in LA. And my, my, my boss was like, let's go down and meet Neil. And he's like, well, it's going to be Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young recording or rehearsing for their upcoming tour. Are you cool with that? Of course I walked in and they were harmonizing acapella in this giant room. Sound of God. So what a privilege. My whole life is in some strange way. Well, it has been an absolute joy to speak with you. And here's how I end these things, Diana. First of all, I'm going to, we're going to do a little acting. A little acting involves, put your, uh, put your little mask on. Um, I'm going to say goodbye. You're going to say goodbye. And uh, we'll quote unquote, hang up. And we'll chat for about two minutes after as a goodbye. Official deal. Great. Here we go. All right. Uh, Diana, holy shit, this interview was unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you for walking with me on all of this stuff. Grief and broke back and that incredible story about Heath Ledger. I have gained like a, I've gained a billion years of wisdom so far. So your turn. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. What a joy this was. All right. I'm going to pretend to hang up. It's going to go. Uh, here we go. One, two, three, 